From Hong Kong, this is the Mea Culpa podcast with lessons learned from startups based on the postmodern conference where founders, investors, lawyers, and mentors share their stories about working on, with, or for startups. Today, we have Nick Haralambus. Nick is a keynote speaker and he helps business leaders build better company culture, but also he has been an experienced entrepreneur for 22 years. Uh, Nick, welcome. Thank you so much for having me. Nick, can you tell me, how did you end up becoming an entrepreneur? Um, I didn't really end up becoming an entrepreneur. I kind of feel like uh, it was my vocation from when I was very young. Um, My family is filled with entrepreneurs uh, and in the very typical Mediterranean way of life, um, they wanted more for me and better for me. So they they never pushed me into entrepreneurship. They actually resisted that path quite dramatically, wanted me to be a doctor or a lawyer or anything other than an entrepreneur. But um, I, the short version of the story is I taught myself to code when I was 11. I built my first website when I was 12, um, hacked my first computer when I was 13, didn't like that and didn't do that again, um, and then built my first business when I was 16. Uh, so part of my school curriculum was, now that you're going into business economics, start a business. And I was hooked. Um, and from 16 to the age of 26, I built, sure, maybe 12 startups um, of all of them, one succeeded. And then in the following 10 years, I had another two exits. So that's kind of how I got into it. Okay. So you never really worked for a boss. I have fortunately had the experience of working for Vodafone in South Africa for about 18 months. Um, That was the extent to which I've been formally employed and subsequently left there, raised venture capital and started the startup we're going to talk about today, actually. Okay. Okay. Great. Great to hear. Um, just a quick overview of those first startups that you did when you were uh, young and still in school. What, what were the ideas? What were the um, uh, the businesses? So the very first business was uh, selling Greek worry beads to my classmates. Um, so I'd gone to Greece on a holiday, bought a ton of these new worry beads, and uh, I sold them to, I think I sold 400 sets uh, throughout the school. There were only a thousand people in my school. So half of the people in my school were playing with these noisy worry beads and they eventually got banned at school. Um, so that was the first one. And then after that, um, I went to study journalism uh, at Rhodes University and got into a band, which I count as a very interesting startup experience. Um, bands are about business, not about music. Uh, music gets you in the game in the same way that a startup is about a good idea. It gets you in the game, but it's about more than that. Um, and that band did really well. We almost signed a record deal, but our lead singer got a formal job at Unilever and didn't actually end up joining the band. Um, and then I also started around this time, uh, 2003 WordPress came out and citizen journalism was becoming a thing. So I started a university campus news site that um, correlated all the news from all the university campuses in the country um, and formulated the official university news site for the country, um, which was interesting because it was brand new, this idea of getting people on the ground to report online and then people online to read the news. We're talking about 20 years ago. Um, and that business uh, ended up doing okay, but my co-founders wanted it to be a nonprofit as all um, starry-eyed 18-year-olds, 19-year-olds wanted to be. And I disagreed, so I took the business and um, went on my own. Um, it didn't work in the end. 
I then started a social network around the same time Facebook started, about a year after Facebook started, um, called DigSpot, which was a uh, social network for students in digs to communicate with each other, share information about landlords, um, recipes, that sort of thing. And student businesses are very hard to make work because students think that students are the center of the universe, and they're not. Um, and from there, uh, actually that story, a short little lesson on that one, I raised my first venture capital for that uh, social network. And about five days later, gave the money back to the angel investor um, because I had no idea what I was doing. And I thought to myself, let me rather just give this guy his money back, save the network, save the relationship and go and do something else rather than waste this guy's money. And to this day, still have my co-founder and the investor as uh, friends in my network. So those were some of the businesses that I started before the age of 22. Okay. You raised that capital from that angel investor based upon some yeah, assumptions, some promises, some validation. Uh, what did those five days yeah, mean for you? What, what did you discover in those five days when that money was in the bank? I discovered that I had no idea what I was doing, um, that I'm a better salesman at that time than I was an execution uh, startup guy. So the lesson was to go and learn how to execute before you raise funding. Um, I We didn't have product market fit. We had a good sales pitch. We had a good um, product that looked good, but we didn't have traction. So luckily we looked at this and we thought, what are we going to do with this little money? Uh, South African venture capitals. So I'm now based in London, but at the time I was in South Africa, venture capitalists in South Africa give you just enough money to fail. And unless you've got a really good idea of how you're going to use that tiny amount of capital to scale, you may as well just give it back because you are inevitably going to learn the lesson that you know you need more money to prove. Mm. And we just decided that in those five days, our reputation was more important than raising money and blowing this guy's capital. Okay. And then you know what your weak points are. How do you go about to, to, uh, yeah, to acquire those skill sets? Um, in my life, uh, hard grind, um, knocking my head against a wall and learning the lessons. Um, I like to call that living at the forefront of incompetence, that um, the smartest people I know, know that they don't know things. Um, and they're willing to bash their heads against the wall and go, oh, okay, I can't go through that wall. Let me take a left turn and go through that wall. Um, so for me, it was very iterative, very reactionary. Uh, the first book I wrote was called Do Fail, Learn, Repeat, because that's how I built businesses for the first 10 years that I was a business builder, is I'd do something, it would fail, I'd be aware enough to learn that it was failing, and then I'd repeat and try something different until something stuck. Um, and I think that a lot of founders do that, founders who don't have a network of mentors who can help them and advisors who can push them. I was alone. I was just building stuff with other people who I knew that were like me building stuff. So that was kind of how I learned. Um, I'm also a firm believer having uh, taught myself to code from the age of 11 and being internet native. Um, I'm a firm believer that if you want to learn something, there is free information available. Wikipedia is free to access. YouTube is free to access. Sure, you need the data costs, but the data costs are coming down further and further. So if you want to learn how to code, just go YouTube it, go and find an online course. So that's kind of how I put stuff together. Oh, I don't know what a shareholders agreement is. Let me Google and find a lawyer and then contact them and ask them. And that's really how I lived. I'm not afraid to be the dumbest person in the room. And that helps me learn a lot faster than a lot of people. Um, quite often, 
when yeah you start out you have no network uh, what you already said earlier uh, i also think that maybe at that point uh, we were talking about 20 years ago there was not a like a vibrant startup community uh, actually nowhere except maybe for silicon valley uh, especially not in south africa how how did you get in contact with that one angel investor that said hey i like this guy um, let let's give him some money so we took advantage of uh, the old school corporate network. So one of my co-founders um, had been working with banks, doing some like youth development and helping the banks understand younger communities like students. So we tapped into the executives at the corporates and we just hit them up for money that we knew they could afford. Um, and we were brazen. We put a business plan together and we just pitched them and they luckily gave us money. Um, it was a much crazier time. I mean, back then you could raise money off a business plan or for one page business plan because the dot-com bubble had burst in the, U the US, but that had left waves around the world that holy crap, there is a bubble, but there's tech. And if there's tech, there must be something cool. So what happened in the US with the bubble meant that the, the knock-on effect was that other countries were starting to evolve their Silicon Valleys. Um, and we luckily at the time just had ideas and were brazen enough to pitch them. Um, that means that you think that's not the case right now? No, now I think that it is much more competitive. I think that entrepreneurship has become cool. Um, startups have become very fashionable. Technology has become ever-present. Um, there's a race to the bottom for all of these things. So you can get WYSIWYG builders. You've got Shopify where you can start stores. You're competing with Amazon at every turn. Um, it is a much more intense time to be building things. Um, and I think that the world has woken up to the fact that if you want to have control of your life, have control of your financial future, you have to start a business. Um, the jobs in South Africa, for example, we've got one of the highest unemployment rates in the world, the highest Gini coefficient in the world. So people in the country are understanding that it's time to start building stuff, not getting hired to build stuff. Okay, which is true. Then you gave the money, you're acquiring some skills, then you start building a business uh, after that. What, what was the first business that you said by yourself? Yes, I can see me doing this for the next five to 10 years. So while I was employed at Vodafone, um, my lecturer from university was my boss at Vodafone. And the two of us worked quite closely together um, in the internet division of Vodafone uh, in South Africa. And <clears throat> for context, that Vodacom, it, it's called Vodacom now as Vodafone, it was acquired fully. Uh, it's one of the biggest mobile networks. It was one of the first mobile networks on the content, continent and it's very progressive. So we were in the product development internet division of Vodafone and we'd launched some stuff and we got frustrated. So we decided to build our own mobile internet company. And um, what we did on the weekends, on the evenings, on our own, was we built a mobile enabled social network builder for feature phones. Now, for those of you who are younger than uh, the iPhone, um, a feature phone <laughs> feature phone is a phone that did not have a touch screen and could access the internet, but had a very traditional web browser that was just shrunk down for a very small phone. And they're very data light. They're not data intensive like our phones are today. So that means that you're serving websites that need to be less than one meg in size in totality. Um, so we built a platform that allowed emerging markets users to use their feature phones to build social networks of their own for their churches, their soccer teams, their houses or whatever. <clears throat> 
So we saw some traction early on in this. Um, we launched it globally. We had uptake. We had thousands of social networks built and tens of thousands of users joining those social networks in all these really interesting factions like emo kids and clowns and all sorts of unique little pockets of internet wisdom. Uh, so we left and we went to Cape Town where venture capital was burgeoning um, and we raised money. Uh, and the two of us moved. I left my family. I left my friends. I left my partner. Um, and I moved to Cape Town with my business partner and we started building. Okay. So that means that you go to Cape Town, rent an office. The two of you are sitting there. And then what was was the very first thing when you were sitting in that office the very first day? What was the first thing you did? I wish that I could say we had an office. We were in a room in my house. So I rented uh, a place to live and the office was the house. And luckily we had, we had a product, we had traction, we had venture capitalists who were experienced and they sat on our board and they could guide us a little bit. And we started... Um, figuring out what the product roadmap needed to look like now that we'd raised funding. And we had quite severe traction. Um, so the the servers, we, there were no elastic servers back then. You had to basically build your own elasticity into servers, which is insane if you think about it now. Um, so if you had a day of lots of traffic, your server would go down. Now with Amazon Elasticity, they just add another server. It's crazy. Like It's crazy to think in my lifetime it's come that far. Um, so we planned our tech stack, we planned our product roadmap, um, and then we had, I was the business development side of the company, my co-founder was the technical side of the company, um, and he is 10 years older than me, and bear into mind here, this is relevant for the story, uh, the power dynamic is very interesting between the two of us, because he's older, he was my lecturer, he was my boss at my previous company, and now we're equals and I'm the CEO because he didn't want to be the CEO. So I start doing business development because this is also a B2B platform. Um, because we're getting traction, we can now white label social networks for other brands in the emerging markets. And we very quickly, literally within three months of publicly launching, signed a, a contract with Guinness in Nigeria. And for context, at the time, this is about... 15 years ago, uh, 16 years ago. At the time, Guinness in Nigeria accounted for one out of every three bottles sold in the world. So Guinness is huge in Nigeria because they sponsor the Premier League football. So we basically secured a deal to build them a social network for the next period of time. And we would host and manage it. And it became a huge part of our income. Uh, basically, we signed a, a million dollar contract within three months of being alive. It was amazing, but now we needed to scale. So we started trying to find developers. And at this time, we've got so much traction that we're like, okay, we need to raise more money. So we start looking at VCs in Germany, in London, in New York, in Texas. Uh, we went to South by Southwest. Within 12 months of moving to Cape Town, we spent a month, the two of us, in another country raising funding. Um, and we'd hired two people that we just left in Cape Town. They'd only onboarded with us for like three weeks and we were like, okay, bye, that's fun. We're gonna leave you now. And both of us just left. Um, so, I mean, you can just get a sense of the, the dramatic trauma that is incoming because we're scaling like every startup thinks they should. We're growing because growth is good. Um, it's what the venture capitalists expect. It's what we expect. And um, then the growth stopped. Then um, after 18 months of working with Guinness, the agency in the middle copied our code, 
uh, rebuilt our platform and took Guinness on directly and cut us out of the equation and didn't renew the contract for year two or year three. And that was three quarters of our income gone. And we had to start doing retrenchments. Um, the co-founder relationship started to break down pretty dramatically because I'm a 25-year-old CEO, uh, first-time 25-year-old CEO with a 35-year-old business partner who is a CTO who doesn't believe I'm capable. Um, and so I do what any business co-founder will do. I start business development. I go up to Johannesburg. I sign us some more deals. And very vividly, I remember this is now year two, August. I come back to Cape Town and sit down with my co-founder after three weeks on the road. And I'm like, good news. I've signed us four new clients. We're break even. Like we're back, we're back on track. And he looks at me sitting across at the coffee shop and he's like, that doesn't matter. Uh, I've sold the company and you've got three days to decide if you are coming with me or if you're going to block this deal or what you want to do. And if you don't, I quit and I'm leaving. And I was like, um, that's a joke, right? He's like, nope, it's Tuesday today. You've got till Friday to decide. Here's everything. Like, let's move forward. And I was absolutely shell-shocked. Um, this is a guy I'd known for 10 years at this point or eight years. And we'd been on holiday together. Our families had been on holiday together. And he was being serious. So he, there's a couple of things that are interesting to learn. Um, he didn't have a fiduciary responsibility or the um, legal wherewithal to sell our company. He went to these buyers behind the backs of me and the VC. He exposed our books to them. He showed our strategy to them um, and he secured his job. And in lieu of the deal, he would become the CTO of this new business that they were building. And this was the biggest uh, social network in I would say in Africa at the time, there was a company called Mixit, M-X-I-T. It was basically WhatsApp, but 10 years before WhatsApp started, um, they were doing instant message um, over apps forever. And they ended up acquiring our business. Um, and it was a brutal and intense six-month period between me finding out, in fact, not even six months, three months. This all went down in three months, uh, from August to, to December. Um, and it was brutal and intense. And yeah, we ended up having to sell the business to these people and I left the company. Uh, because I was almost in the beginning of your answer uh, going to ask co-founder agreement, those kind of uh, things in place, uh, vesting. Yep. Was it in place? Uh, obviously not. Or was it something? No, it was. Yeah. Yes. Okay. Yep. Yep. So, so one thing I can say in spite of my naivety is I do always um, plan for divorce. Uh, when you are signing a contract, plan for divorce, not for a happy marriage, uh, then you can forget about it. And the other perspective I have here is the second you have to refer to a shareholder's agreement, it's over. Like mm -hmm. if you have to look at the fine print, your relationship is done. And uh, luckily, at the time, I didn't feel like it was lucky, but luckily, our venture capitalists were very good. Um, they were young, they understood co-founder relationships. And when I presented them with this, they said to me, well, what do you want to do? And I said, well, I want to fight. It's my company. I can do this. Like, we don't need him. And they said, yes, but we invested in a co-founder pair. And now that pair is broken. And for you to recover from this is going to take you months of hiring, of getting unbundling him from this business. 
uh, finding new income is just going to be too difficult. So we recommend you sell. And I was like, no, I'm going to sue him because he's broken his fiduciary responsibility. He has basically sunk this business and everything in it. And he's in for millions and millions because he's done this. And they said, mm, maybe you should think about this. And then they did something that at the time felt a little bit questionable, but in hindsight was the right move. Um, they said to me, you can choose to fight this and how would that look? Or you can choose to have a positive exit and how would that look? And so they put it to a vote because we structure our boards always to have an uneven number of people like you always should. <clears throat> so they pulled me into a boardroom and said, hey, you know, it's time to vote. And we voted for this deal and your co-founder has voted for this deal. So you're already outvoted. We think you should just vote to make it unanimous. And now it's been three months and they have squeezed my salary, the incoming buyers and the VCs. They've boxed me out of the business. Um, I haven't been paid prior to that for six months because we were going through a very hard time, whereas my co-founder did not take a salary cut. Red flag number one for anybody who's listening. Um, because he said, oh, I'm older than you. I've got a family. I can't afford this. If that's the case, then your, your um, vision isn't aligned with your co-founder and you shouldn't be building with this person. So now I've gone about nine months without a proper salary. And um, there was a moment where I thought, okay, I'm, I'm not going to vote for this. And to pause that voting, uh, I had met with the incoming CEO, the guy who was buying our business. And he started to squeeze me even harder. And eventually one day he phoned me on the phone and said, look, we, we think this deal needs to happen and uh, you are holding it up and this is taking too long. And I literally just looked at the phone and swore at him. I said, F you, and I hung up the phone. And then everybody started phoning me again because now the deal was off and I was gonna cause trouble. So now we're back in the boardroom and it's time to vote. So I voted for this unanimous decision because it's what everybody else would done. Unbeknownst to me, in another boardroom, half an hour later, they sat my co-founder down and said, listen, Nick's already voted for this deal. We've already, vote, already voted for this deal. We think you should vote for this deal. And then we're all unanimous. So in theory, they tricked me into voting for this deal, but they did it because they knew it was the best outcome. It was a profitable exit for everybody involved. Um, I got to get paid. I got my first successful exit and I got to walk away. Um, whereas, uh, Fast forward 18 months and the business that acquired my business went bankrupt and the co-founder that had sold me out was out of a job. So in hindsight, it kind of all worked out for the best. Um, and there are so many lessons for me to unpack in this one scenario that defined so much of what I built for the next 12 years um, that, you know, we can jump off from here. Yeah. I can definitely understand your your thinking. I can also definitely understand the uh, the investor's perspective, but I can also understand uh, your probably lack of sleep at that point, and that was a very rough three months. Yeah, I mean, let me let me give you some context on the lack of sleep. Um, that was the period in my life that I I really truly understood what burnout was. Um, before burnout was a topic of conversation and mental health mattered, that startup. Um, 
because I was too young to understand what my body was going through and what my mind was going through. Um, I was working the typical startup, um, and I hate this, the hustle porn times. I was working 18 hour days, seven days a week, six months in a row, uh, grinding it out. And the outcome of that, my body manifests stress very physically. And for those of you listening, if you have a stomach ulcer, it's probably stress. If you have chest pain, it's probably stress. If you can't sleep at night, it's probably anxiety. I didn't realize all of these things. So I had this compounding effect that I wasn't getting paid a salary. I had 15 staff that needed to get paid salaries. My co-founder wasn't taking a pay cut. So all of the financial pressure was on me. I was in a new city without any support structure. Um, and I was building a business that nobody had built before in the place we were. And about two months into building this business or three months into building this business in Cape Town, um, I woke up at about 3 a.m. with an immense stomach cramp and had to drive myself to the emergency room because I had nobody around me. And I actually had a stomach ulcer that was about to rupture. And that was purely stress-induced. Following that, over the next 12 months, I had kidney stones twice. I had insomnia and my body forgot how to regulate urine. So I was peeing every hour on the hour for 24 hours a day for weeks at a time. Think about that. That means that every hour you're trying to get sleep, you're waking up to go to the toilet. It became a joke in my team that, oh, Nick's going to pee. It must be three o'clock. Oh, Nick's going to pee. It must be four o'clock. So the stress and the mental health strain that I was on uh, was insane. In that 18-month period, 24-month period, I went from a person who had his hair in a ponytail to almost bald. It was, I, I am now fully bored. None of you can see me, but I am, I'm fully bored. I embraced it. I have a, a big, thick beard though, so I feel okay about it. Um, so these things all manifested and taught me what burnout really looked like. This, this is the face of burnout. This is the insane coolness of hustle culture. Um, and I've dedicated the last 10 years after this to telling founders that it doesn't have to be that way, to trying to tell my story as honestly and openly and transparently as possible so that you realize that there are more important things than building your startup. One of them is health. Um, and now I've evolved this into what I call the sacrifice fallacy. This idea that <clears throat> this fallacy that you have to sacrifice your mental and physical health to build something of value is actually completely incorrect. Founders are trained to put themselves at the bottom of their priority list, when actually, if you put yourself at the top of your priority list, you are a more enjoyable person to be around. You do your best work. You attract the best talent. If you put yourself at the bottom of that priority list, you're underslept, you're underrested, you are underfed, you are underexercised, and you are an absolute painful human being to be around. If you prioritize yourself, then you are a better human being to be around. You do your best work when you are well rested. All these founders I know are looking for a silver bullet. Let me tell you what that is. Eight hours of sleep. Consistently getting eight hours of sleep is that secret pill that you've been wanting to make you rich. It's sleep. And if you're one of those people who tells me, oh, I only need three hours of sleep. No, you don't. You're wrong. You are absolutely wrong. You're not Casey Neistat. You're not Bob Marley. You need more than three hours of sleep. And when you do get it, you'll be a better version of yourself. Uh, correct, definitely. When I had to say goodbye to one of my first uh, companies that I set up, my first baby was also forced, not in, in the way, but I was physically ill from that. Like there were like two or three days that I didn't come out of the, uh, out of bed and probably around like six or seven days that I did not go out of the, uh, out of the house, uh, because there was so much, yeah, things that I had to 
go through physically also and mentally uh, to to say goodbye for that. But on the other hand, um, and I will say, uh, the first one was extremely painful. Uh, but by the time it's number seven, you get better at it. So um, in one way or another, yes. Absolutely. I mean, uh, your your point resonates with me. It it took me months to overcome this trauma. Like it, it was like a loss, um, because for me it was losing a co-founder, losing a business, uh, losing a friend, and losing a mentor. All of those things are wrapped up in this business. Um, so it was very intense. I remember, uh, and I, I learned this lesson, and I'll never do this again. I remember receiving the sale document. Uh, and in Cape Town, it was 33 degrees, it was just boiling hot. I was sitting in my box of shorts in my living room, watching TV. The documents arrived. I paused the TV, signed the documents, threw them on the table and carried on watching TV. And this was the first successful exit of my business. And I never celebrated. I never went for a drink. I never patted myself on the back because it was this brutal trauma. And looking back, that was five or six months of overcoming this trauma, of understanding what had happened, of coming to terms with these losses, and then realizing that I, ne- I didn't celebrate anything. That whole period was just me busting my ass for nothing. And to this day, no matter what it is, I will celebrate small victories because they count, they matter. They also galvanize your brain and your team because people like to celebrate wins. So that lesson was a very important one for me uh, that I said, still stick by today. Correct, correct. You should indeed celebrate um, uh, or at least have a bottle of champagne on ice uh, in case you have something to celebrate for. Absolutely. And, you know, even if it's a failure, there's lessons in that. Like that that, that experience taught me so much about failure, about growth mindset, about partnerships, that it's defined what I call my nickisms, my 10 to 12 rules for living. Um, and one of them that emerged from this event specifically was trust people until they give you a reason not to. Because I, I struggled to trust my co-founders after that particular relationship, and it's not a good way to live. You can't build businesses unless you trust the people you're building them with. So I have a rule that I will trust you implicitly until you give me a reason not to, and then it's over. It's a one shot and done. Talking about co-founders, did you always set up a business with co-founders or uh, was it also something that you were a sole founder? I have tried hard to always build businesses with co-founders, especially if you're looking to get VC backed. Um, Venture capitalists struggle to invest in solo founders. It's very difficult to be a solo founder. It's very lonely. The hours are grueling. Um, and you generally need somebody to complement your skills. It's very unlikely that you'll have one founder who has the business development, storytelling, leadership, and technical skills to build a technology business. So I've always leaned towards building with someone, especially since most of my businesses have been highly technical. But there was an experience. I built a, a fashion company. This was actually my rebound business from the one we're talking about. Um, and I call it a rebound business because it should have been a fun kick around. It shouldn't have been seven years of my life. Um, and it ended up being seven years of my life. Um, and that one I built alone um, until I realized that I, I couldn't. And I actually ended up bringing my life partner in with me. And her and I built that for the next five years. So I did two years on my own and then five years together. And then we sold that business. That's a great segue to she became your co-founder or at least a business partner. How is it to be a business partner with your life partner? <laughs> um, 
for us it was good uh it worked for us we we've been together for a long time since we were 20 so at that time we'd been together at least 10 years we're still together now so it's been 18 years this year um and it worked well because the foundation of our relationship was based on open communication and that's basically the foundation of any good co-founder relationship, any good life relationship, is you have to be able to be brutally honest. Um, and around the time that we started working together, I came across this um, concept called radical candor. And if you haven't heard of Radical Candor, it's basically a management philosophy um, developed by a lady who used to work at Google. And it is summed up in the following. Uh, you need to challenge people directly, but care about them personally. And that's basically how I run my life is you're going to know exactly where I stand, but I'm not going to be a dick about it. I'm going to tell you that you've done something wrong, that I still care about you and your work is still good, but that's not good enough. And so that's kind of how we built our business and our relationship. Um, but there was also a caveat in there that at any point, if either one of us wanted to pull the parachute, that was it, it was over. And seven years in, we had a, an AGM and she decided she didn't want to work together anymore and she didn't want to work in this business anymore. So we sold it 10 months later. All right. A little bit what you say indeed, uh, it's not about the person, the personality, but it's more about directions. Uh, same thing as, as um, uh, having kids growing up you're not saying you're wrong you're wrong or you do no you're doing at that point you're doing something wrong but the person itself is not wrong so um yes. something similar in that sense um how do you prepare a company for acquisition then so the yeah so that business we'd rain i'd raised venture capital for as well so i had a fully constituted board um of very experienced vcs uh, some 30 year into their career, some brand new, but deeply into retail. And so the first thing you have to do when you have a board is you have to propose the idea to the board and you have to explain and get their buy-in. Um, and the truth is if a CEO ever says that they're out, they're out. Like you can't convince somebody to stay, no matter how much you pay them, if their head's not in it, they're out. So my board understood that. And we then started hunting for buyers. Um, so you have to put your due diligence documentation together. You have to make sure that your um, legal documents are in place, that your um, employment contracts are in place. We had five stores for our retail business around the country. We had an e-commerce business that shipped to 20 countries around the world. So you have to get all of the assets that might make the business enticing in order. So you do that, you put the documents together and then you start finding good fits. And for us, it was going to talk to our manufacturers, going to talk to e-commerce players in the space, going to talk to retailers in the space, going to talk to private investors, and you shop the business around. And we were extremely fortunate with our timing. We managed to sell the business in 2019, which if we had waited until 2020 with lockdowns and five stores in malls around South Africa, it would have been over. So the timing was good and we managed to get out and get our investors back their money and just move on to a different business that wasn't a rebound. Okay. That's, of course, a, a highly physical business to set up. Uh, the other one was like very technical. Um, what would you suggest for people? Physical startup products or technical, highly scalable ventures? I'm not going to like my answer, but I think context here is king. Um, I like to say uh, that people should pivot towards what they're good at. 
um, the word pivot has become really popular since COVID uh, kicked in. You know, pivot, pivot, just make sure your business is able to pivot to technology. I don't buy that. Um, if you have never built an e-commerce platform before and all you've done is sell socks in physical retail, pivoting towards e-commerce is going to take you 12 to 24 months to get the platform set up, to find your customers, to get them to buy, to understand logistics. So there isn't really an easy answer to this question. The easy answer is figure out what you are best at, what you can do that other people just can't and then pivot towards that. And it might not be a product, it might not be technical, it might be service, you might be a great speaker. Like I've shifted my career to being a keynote speaker of late and publishing books because I am good at and have a passion for telling stories. So that's my advice is find something that you're good at and then do that for a while because building businesses is nuanced. There isn't a hammer you can hit on the head with that solves all the nails that are businesses. It just doesn't happen. Some businesses need good storytellers even if they are technical. And I have a good story around this. Um, I once interviewed and met a founder of a company called Prometheus Fuel. His name is uh, Robert McGuinness, Rob McGuinness. And he is a drama major who is also a scientist. And he has invented a way to extract CO2 emissions from the atmosphere and turn them into fuel that our current cars can use. And he is very open to say that the only reason he's managed to raise funding is because of his drama major, that he is able to tell a good story. So the advice is pivot towards what you're good at. Don't avoid those skills. I spent most of my career wondering why I wasn't technical enough to be a CTO. Well, CTOs can't sell products. They need business founders to go out and sell. So pivot towards what you're good at. Yeah, great. Quite often, indeed, you need at least two people, but if possible, four co-founders, because then all the four aspects of building a business are covered. Like legal, you can hire, HR, you can hire, but uh, all the critical items, uh, the four of them uh, should, uh, should be there covered in the founding team. Yes. Yeah. If you're taking a big swing at a billion dollar business, I agree with that. Um, what is often uh, given advice that you don't agree with? Growth. I think people say that growing is the only option for startups. And that was one of the, the big lessons, the hindsight lessons that I learned from my co-founder um, experience was we thought that growth for the sake of growth was cool. And it isn't. What's cool is profit. Like profitable startups raise more money. Profitable startups have control. They have leverage. They can hire the best talent. They can take their time and build the best business. We are in a world right now where we believe that things need to be fast when they don't. And I'm very happy to say that I'm going to a conference in Italy next month that is focused on zebra startups, not unicorn startups, founders that are building sustainable, slow growth, profitable entities that do good, that have purpose. Those businesses are the ones that have been around for 100 years and you've never heard of. The WeWorks, the Ubers, those are high growth unicorns that often come crashing down and look right now. The stock markets are red. The crypto markets are red. Businesses that are surviving are profitable. So growth for the sake of growth is not a good idea. You don't need to raise money just because you need to grow. You need to figure out why you need to grow at the rate you're looking at. Do you need 100% year on your growth? Absolutely not. 10% will get you where you need to be. 10% compounding growth over 10 years is a massive business that you never have to worry about again. So why? Why do you need to grow just because people tell you to grow? Correct. That's correct. Thank you very much. Uh, what's something that's not a secret, but most people don't know about you? <laughs> um, just by listening, uh, it's, not, it's not a secret, but you won't know that I am quite heavily tattooed. 
um, and that I got my first tattoo when I was 14 years old. And it is a really important part of my identity. Um, every city I go to, I get a tattoo of the city that reminds me of that city. So I'm pretty heavily tattooed. Okay. Okay. Um, and if there's one thing you want people to take away from this talk, what is it? I don't think I spoke about this directly, but the one thing that I, I'm trying to help people understand, uh, it's kind of tied up, is most people have never defined what success looks like to them. Like, do you want a big startup with thousands of staff and billions in turnover because you want that or because it's what other people believe you should want? Are you building this business because you want to build this business or because you think you need to pay for your salaries or your lifestyle or what? Like, have you defined success? And then the knock on to that, the second order effect of defining success is figuring out where you want to be. So most people believe that they're trees. I am here. I have roots. I am stuck. And let me tell you, you're not a tree. You don't have roots. You have agency and you need to exercise it. You can only exercise your agency when you understand what you are striving towards and what version of success is yours. Using myself as an example, I don't like cars. I don't ever really want to spend a lot of money on cars. Buying a Ferrari will never be a show of success for me. But if you are tricked into thinking that, you will always feel like a failure because you never can afford a Ferrari. I have no interest in Ferraris, so I never consider myself a failure if I don't have one. I like to have the freedom to travel. That's how I define success. So what in my life allows me to do that? Because I've thought about that version of success, I can start using my day-to-day -to, -day to get to those things. If you've never defined your own version of success, you are trapped in somebody else's life. Okay, great. Great, thank you very much for that. Uh, I want to thank you for your valuable insights and sharing of your lessons learned in startups. So thank you, Nick. My pleasure. Thanks for having me. Uh, for the listeners, although the rating system of podcasts is hideous, if you like this Mea Culpa series, you can rate this podcast with five stars and the motivation for the makers. I want to thank Copy Ventures for making this series uh, possible. If you have any suggestions on future guests, uh, let us know. Our contact details are in the show notes. This is Jeffrey Brewer. Go out and build something meaningful.